We are in the first half of the, our series that we're doing through the book of Acts. We're, we're picking all of the, the highlights of the book of Acts, which are really those, those climactic, those, those overflowing, powerful sermons. So we're taking, we, we've looked so far at two sermons of Peter's, and now we're going to start looking at Stephen's today, and there will be further and further into the uh, uh, weeks. We'll, we'll really just start focusing all on Paul, because he's the main character of the last half of the book of Acts. But our, our intention in this series, while you're still going to Acts chapter 7, our intention has been to refocus ourselves and to remind ourselves on the centrality of preaching in the Christian church and religion. There's just no way, there's no way you can read the, the history of revivals and awakenings in church history, or that you can, you can read the New Testament, or there's, there's no way that you can point to any church that has neglected the, the centrality of preaching the Word of God, clearly uh, uh, centering on the gospel of Jesus. There's no church, movement, denomination, or anything that has neglected that as central which lasts in the, the solid foundations of the faith for more than half a generation. Any church that turns the preaching into chats and, and you know, we're not going to take sections of scripture, let's just sort of have topics and we'll, we'll go from here to there and it's merely man's advice. That church derails eventually. That denomination is found buried within a generation. When we talk about preaching, as has been so evident in the book of Acts so far, we're never talking about a man we're never talking about a performance. Preaching is about Jesus. And preaching, the Word of God, explaining it and opening it, is God's tool and method to preserving people away from performance and away from man and away from heresy. The preaching of the gospel is God's chosen instrument to grow us, protect us, and preserve us against error. And so we go through all of these amazing climactic sermons. Today we meet with Peter, uh, not Peter, Stephen. I'll probably do that a few times already because I've, I've just had Peter so heavily in my mind the last few weeks, but we'll see what, what happens. Uh, Stephen is who we meet here in Acts, end of Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7. It, the great thing to know about, about Stephen, and this is starting to remove all of our excuses because I know as we've been looking at Peter You've had an excuse that I don't have to do open-air preaching. I don't have to be bold in proclamation. This is an apostle. This is the number one apostle. He's the head guy. That's what he does. And today we see Stephen who is merely a dick. The scum of the church is the dick. If we're just honest, they get the dodgy job. I've got one running to grab me a water bottle right now. And uh, when he comes, we will all be very thankful. But anyway, deacons are not, are not the, the high, the, the, the most gifted, and, and yet he can preach. He's not an elder, he's not an apostle, but he's a preacher. Every Christian should have enough of the Bible, enough of the gospel in our hearts and minds that, that we can at any point just, just speak it out to those who are asking. Uh, uh, Spurgeon used to talk about John Bunyan, and he said that his blood type, John Bunyan's blood type was bibline. You prick him, he just bleeds Bible. I want that to be us. I want us to be Bible-saturated people so that we can at all times be able to give a defense of what we believe. And so we see here in Acts chapter 6 that one of the deacons was Stephen, and he was, if you look at verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so here he is, he's out preaching, and he's doing miracles like the apostles did. And then there's, there's a synagogue, there's, there's a group of men who had belonged to one of the, the teaching schools of the Jews, 
And they heard what he was saying. They decided to pick a fight with him because he wasn't a rabbi like they were. So they stand up, they start debating, and it said that they could not withstand his power. His wisdom that God had, God had given him through the knowledge of the scriptures and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they could not withstand the wisdom. That'll do. He took way too long, didn't he? When he comes back, thank you very much, McKay. I appreciate it. <clears throat> it says that these men could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And so they, they, this is in the last half of chapter 6. They instigate opposition against this guy. That he, he shuts them down with Bible. So they, sort of, they get a crowd. They, they start instigating opposition to this man. And then they're saying about Stephen that he is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Remember that. Moses and God. That's going to become central to Stephen's sermon. And so they stirred up the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin was, the, was sort of the, 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 the political, religious authority in Jerusalem, the 70-something guys who would judge all matters of blasphemy. They stir up those guys. They get the big dogs in. We said last week they were really more akin to the mafia with all the police in their pockets. That's, that's what these guys were like. They were not just, they were political. So they stir up those guys to come out, and Stephen gets arrested, and then they start bearing false witness about him. Uh, uh, John Stott, one of my, my favorite theologians, he says, and, and I'm sure you've experienced this, he says, where arguments fail against opposition, mud makes a tremendous substitute. You can't beat that person in an argument, that's fine. Smear their reputation. Tell everybody about lies behind their back or, or secrets that, you know, they probably won't admit to this, but I heard it and I'm pretty sure it's true, and they, they smear. So what they couldn't do through argument, they do through false accusation. And they say, again, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, this is not false, this is what the apostles did say, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, so at the center of this false accusation and, and legal accusation, at the center of it is these two pillars. He is against God, and he is against Moses. If you're a Jew, they're two pretty important people, God and Moses, who represented God. Right? And, and they say in another layer of accusation, he's against the temple saying it's going to be destroyed. That's our holy place. And he's against the law that Moses gave to us. So you see the, the double layer of the accusation is he's against God and the temple and he's against Moses and the law. You can't get more anti-Jewish, more blasphemous than that. That's the accusation. That's what Stephen is met with. And he begins to to give his defense, but as they stared at him, verse 15 in chapter 6 ends like this. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Maybe it's because he was, he was shining, and I, I lean on that. I think that God had, had did some kind of miracle through him that just like Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, I think God was witnessing against them with this Moses-like man, face shining like an angel. But Calvin says, well, maybe it was that. Maybe it was rather just that, that he was so bold. He, he was not manly, earthly. 
human-esque at this moment. When he's got the powerful and the rich and the, the, the armored men around him, he doesn't, like a man, shrink back, but like an angel, one of which killed 185,000 Syrians in the Old Testament. Like that kind of character, he's there, he's bold, he's ready to go to deliver the words of God. And I'm going to read now the entirety of Acts chapter 7, and I'm sorry if you, if you don't take to long portions of reading, that's sort of what we got tonight, but uh, uh, you can follow along with me as we read what Stephen says. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. We're all familiar with Abraham's story. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. That's, that's Canaan, which became Israel. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child yet. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. We all know that's But, God said, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the twelve patriarchs. His twelve sons became the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, the, the other 11 brothers, he sent them out to go to Egypt. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his uh, all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Breath, let's keep going. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. So just, just a 
all you under 40s, you haven't got the calling of life on your, the calling of God on your life yet, Moses, he's 40, nothing's happened yet. All right, so at 40, it came into his heart, I'm going to go visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, you remember, you've watched Prince of Egypt, you, 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 you've read uh, the book of Exodus, you know that what had happened is that one slave master of the Egyptians was, was abusing and beating a Jew, and so Moses went, and later that night, he killed the Egyptian and buried him, but he was seen by another Jew. Let's keep reading. He supposed that his own brothers would understand, verse 25, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where, his, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when another 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Next chapter in Moses' life, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God has sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, that's, that's the exodus, led them out of Egypt, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This, the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with all our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this, uh, and for this Moses, who led out from the land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. And so in that day they made a calf. And offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And so I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses to direct them to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our father, in turn, brought it into Joshua when, uh, 
in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophets say, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now Stephen directs to the men themselves. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. May God bless to us the reading of this powerful sermon from Stephen. This is an enormous sermon, and he does, he does many things here. He recaps the history of the Old Testament, which, which is what we're going to do, go back and just make sure we've all got a, a functional, all the puzzle pieces together mindset of the Old Testament. I, I know if you grow up in church or maybe get saved later, you hear all these disconnected stories, and it's good just to put the Old Testament together. But then he also, we're going to look at uh, three main points that he pulls out of this Old Testament storyline, which applies to the people of the day, and especially the accusations that are against him about the temple, about Moses, and about this Jesus. So first, let's just get in our own minds a very clear recap of the Old Testament history. What we see is, is that he starts, in, and this this is going to answer our questions. You know, each week we're going through, we're asking four questions. How does this big sermon in Acts, how does it develop the narrative of salvation throughout the Bible? Secondly, how does it show to us the distinction from Old Covenant and New Covenant? Thirdly, how does it preach Jesus? And fourthly, what are some takeaway applications for us? And it, Stephen's sermon vastly helps us with answering the first. How does this develop the Old, the, the, the salvation narrative, well, the answer is it tells it to us. And it shows us how it culminates on Jesus. Whatever angle you take the Old Testament at, this is God's summary of the whole Old Testament, and it leads to and culminates on Jesus of Nazareth. So let's, let's quickly take a, a, a short uh, recap of all of the Old Testament. We, we start in Abraham, not because before Abraham is just poetic, uh, imagery, no, it's all real history from Adam to Abraham. But the covenant of the Jews, the people of the Jews were sons of Abraham. So, so Stephen's going all the way back to the beginning of the covenant, the beginning of the people of the Jews. And he says that, of course, with Abraham, and then he'll tell us about Joseph, and then he'll tell us about Moses, and then he'll tell us about David and Solomon. And, and here's something I want you to note. The accusation is, you're speaking against the temple, which is synonymous with God, really, you can't speak against the temple, that's our communion with God. Without that, there's no communion with God. And I want you to notice how through each section, Stephen is showing that none of these men had the temple, and yet God was with them. 
So let's recap the history and then we'll pull apart the details a bit more. Abraham was chosen while he was a complete pagan, sovereign election. God God came to him and gave to him a covenant while he was was actually a Chaldean worshipping other gods. And God promised him, I'm going to give you three things. Lots of children and a big nation. Lots of land which you will own. And one of your descendants will bless the whole earth. That they were the, the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. And then, of course, he moved from there to Haran, and then he moved into Canaan, which would become Jerusalem, and he lived there in a tent, and all his family was in, was in a, 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 they, they were just sojourners, they were nomads, they didn't have land yet. And then from there, they moved, uh, 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 the, the 12 sons of his great-grandchildren would be Joseph, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who would then become Israel, and then his sons, the 12 sons of Israel, or the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Joseph. And while they were living in Canaan, Joseph, through a prophecy given to him, said, God's going to elevate me. Turns out, now, brothers hate this. People hate this. But, you know, turns out God's going to make me someone that you all bow down to. Isn't that fun? You want to do a coloring in uh, of that and my wonderful Technicolor coat? It's pretty impressive, don't you think? So they butchered him, conscious, conscience struck a little bit too late, and they decided not to kill him, but at least sell him as a slave. Great older brothers, these guys are. And and so that's how, that's what connects the Jews to Egypt. He was sold as a slave, went to Egypt, and then through many sorts of things that happened, he was accused of rape, he was uh, then made, thrown in prison, and through miracles became the prime minister of Egypt. And then from there, he was able to to store up all of the food, because he had another prophecy, while the rest of the world was thrown into famine. So now we're, we're getting the, the narrative happening. The, the brothers and his whole family, all the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were starving without food, and so had to come to this strange man, this, this guy uh, who was the prime minister of Egypt. Turns out it was their dead brother. They go there. They, they realize that they have safe passage. They can come and live in Egypt, and all was well. The Jews moved into Egypt's backyard. What could go wrong? God had prophesied to Abraham that his sons would become slaves in a foreign land. And for 400 years, that happened. The the next king in place did not know Joseph, enslaved the people, brought them under his his rule, and and put them to work on the pyramids and whatnot. And, And then eventually, he decided there's too many of them. They won't stop breeding. The more I afflict them, the more that... They reproduce, that's how it works, uh, and, and, and then he decides, well, that's what we'll do, we'll kill all the sons. So in the process of this, this, this post-birth abortion process, uh, they, that Moses is saved, is actually found by Pharaoh's daughter, lives in the household, and then from there, as he's an older man, because we, we went through that, he, he got accused of murder, he felt guilty, he wasn't going to be able to stay in Egypt, he moved out, he went to the desert to run away, and he... He herded sheep. That's when he sees the burning bush up on the mountain, which was God speaking to him and an angel in the bush and commissioned him to go back and bring salvation. So he went back. The exodus happens. They all move out into the desert and meet God at Mount Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments. That's when they they build the golden calf. God kills thousands of them for that. And then they go up to the border of Canaan They're about to go into the promised land, promised to Abraham. The reason they left Egypt was to go to the promised land. They disbelieved God. 
They said God can't get us in here. You can read this in, in Numbers. They did not believe that God could overcome those strong men. And so God cursed that generation. And for 40 more years, they wandered the desert under the punishment of God until everyone in that generation was dead. Moses was now 120 years old. After his death, Joshua, anointed by God, led the military conquest through Canaan, wiping out the other nations, dispossessing the land, and taking the nation for themselves. So, so that's how they get back to Canaan, and now it's theirs. But they never had a temple at this point. They still only had uh, the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting. It was, it, was, it was fabric, it was leather, it was beautiful, it was by God's design, but it wasn't a temple. That's the age of the judges, and then David comes about, and they hadn't actually gotten Jerusalem yet. It was belonging to the Jebusites. So David comes in after the ages of the judges. He comes in, wins Jerusalem, sets up a, a royal palace, and now they've got the mountaintop of Jerusalem. He wants to build God a temple because he says, why do I have a palace and God's got a tent? Seems a little bit, you know, out of balance. I know, I'll help God out. Give him some tithes. I'll, I'll help this guy. That is poor, impoverished God. I'll, I'll build him a home. And God says, do not presume. I'll do it. It's all good. So, so his son Solomon was the one that was chosen to build the temple, the glorious temple. And from that point on, the kingdom was powerful. But it split down the middle between north and south. And, and really, uh, Stephen just summarizes it as, from Solomon till Jesus, the history of the Jews can be this. The kings turned to worship false idols. God sent prophets. They killed the prophets. God sent his people into exile. Then he brought them back because he kept his, keeps his promises. And they came back to the land, rebuilt the temple, a couple of more prophets, and then 400 years of silence. Felt a lot like the slavery of Egypt. No voice from heaven. Darkness. And John explodes on the scene proclaiming, these are the days we've been waiting for, moments away, at the door, axe is swung and it's at the root, the Messiah is about to break forth, the kingdom is about to explode, it's coming, then Jesus came, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, he died, fled for our sins, the curse of ages came upon him and he established the kingdom of God. There you go, that's it, Old Testament into New Testament history, that's where it all plugs in together. I hope that's fresh because now we're going to go back and pull apart the points that Stephen wants us to learn. We're going well and we're going strong. <clears throat> so look at uh, 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 back into the, the, the beginning over in verse 2 of chapter 7 because the charge has come against Stephen. You're saying God hates the temple. You're saying God hates the law and this Jesus guy is going to destroy both. No temple, no law, that equals no salvation. That equals no God. They're accusing him of this. And so he takes the four epochs of Old Testament history and shows that while there was no temple, God was still with them. How essential can the temple be if God is not bound by it whatsoever? So he starts with Abraham. Let's, let's look at that from verse 2 till 8, I'm not going to reread it all. You memorized it as I just read it then. But in verses 2 through 8, he, he says these powerful words. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. 
That was the sort of language that was spoken about of the temple. The God of glory and the glory of God. And yet he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia of the Chaldeans. This was a pagan land. What what right does God have to show up the, the Jews' holiness over in that place? Oh, that's right. God created the Jews. God, God makes holy whatever he wants. He's not bound by the temple. So he, he appears to Abraham long before there was a temple. And then even when Abraham moved to Haran, which is modern-day Turkey, and then when he moved again as a sojourner to Canaan, always God was with him and his many sons. And so what God wants us to see is that even amidst all of those different locations, Stephen is saying that without the sacred temple real estate, without owning the land of Israel, still the God of glory was with him. And it gets worse. Because then we look at Joseph. So then the the, the brothers bully and sell Joseph, of course. This is from verse 9 to 16. Those 11 brothers hated him because God had elevated him and prophesied that he would have authority over them. So he was sold as a slave, like we said, accused of rape, thrown in prison, then became second in charge in Egypt. And, 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 and even amidst all of this, again, Stephen's point is, slave, rape accusation, basically a, a full-blooded Egyptian politician in, in a pagan land, again, yet God was with him. Through many, with much wisdom and much power, God was with him in, in that danky little prison cell. God was with him. Does he sound like a God who's bound by this temple? Does he sound like a God who, who just can't work like the old pagan gods, who, who the further they moved away from their nation land, the weaker they got? That, that's what they used to believe. And, and are they comparing God to, to those petty idols? God is strong, holy, omnipotent, wherever he goes, because he doesn't go anywhere. He's everywhere. He made it all. So we'll keep on going. That's Joseph. Of course, God was with him no matter where he was. And then he moves to Moses, verses 17 through 45. And he says that Moses was in Egypt. Then he was a murderer. Then the Jews found out, obviously despised him. They, They rejected his leadership, just like his brothers had rejected Joseph's. Then he goes out to Midian, was a sheep herder cleaning up after sheep all of his life. And then he goes up onto one of those mountains and, and he had there one of the most profound and most famous appearances of God to anybody in all of Scripture. No Jew would say, throughout the, all of the temple age, no Jew would say that God had appeared to anyone like he had appeared to Moses. He was somebody who saw face to face God. He was the one who, like we said, face was shining when he came down off the mountain because he beheld the goodness and the glory of God. Actually, it was, it was just a back glance at it. But no one else had, had had that. This is Moses. And that day, in the bush, out in the desert, up on a mountain, backwaters, God met him. And what did he say to him? He starts walking forward with his crocs on. God says, not here. Take those off. This is holy Ground. Now, why? Remember, connect all of Stephen's dots. Is it holy because it's in Israel? No, it's miles away. Is it holy because it's the Temple Mount? No, there's, there's no temple yet. 
It's holy because God is there. It's holy because he chooses to manifest his power there. That's what makes it holy. Not a location, not a building, but his covenantal presence. And then we move, of course, to David and Solomon. David said, of course, let's build a temple. And God said, no. Now, now let's not at any point, let's not make the error that the Jews were accusing Stephen of making. Let's not say that the temple was evil at all. Let's not say that the tabernacle was the wrong thing to build because they built that to the last stitch in the leather according to God's own design from heaven. That was straight download from heaven, that design. That was not against God's will. The temple was not against God's will. Friends, the temple and the tabernacle was was holy and good and God-glorifying. But the answer is, why? Is it because now God has somewhere to sit and he was getting restless and his legs were sore? And Thank you, Solomon, a seat. Is it because he was kind of lost and he hated having to tell people that he's still renting, so I'm saving up a deposit, I'll get a place soon? Is that why God was so thankful to get a temple? No. The, the reason the temple was good was because God had sovereignly chosen that instrument to manifest his salvation and covenant through. If he'd chosen anything else, that would have been the good thing to do. If he had not chosen the tabernacle and temple to do that, it would have been an evil thing to do. Can you see all of Stephen's points now joining together? He says that even in the age when God did come in and he blessed the temple and he filled it and it was this miraculous display of glory, yet Solomon still said at the moment of its building, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Solomon had it right. In fact, Stephen then then quotes Isaiah 66 when he says, Heaven is my throne. Verse 48, Stephen says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The temple was not constraining God, that now he had room to move. Then he quotes Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? My son's got a habit at the moment. Because I don't use coins. They're everywhere. They're anywhere. They're in the vacuum. I, don't, I just drop them. They're anywhere. My son has this habit of finding coins, collecting them, and then coming and offering them to me. Like if I do something or if I give him something, he'll, he'll offer me his coins. And, and, and at no point am I ever going to be harsh enough to take him by the hand and say, mate, you're working with my crumbs. You'll never put me in debt with those shiny little coiny bits. Right? That, that, that you're finding what I'm leaving by the side. Now you're going to try and hold me in some kind of debt to you? And this is what God is saying through Stephen to the people. You know that I, with a word, spoke into existence the trillions of atoms that make up those bricks. You know that's what I made, right? And this is one tiny little corner of a very large map on a very small planet in an enormous solar system in a huge galaxy which is one of trillions of clusters. Like, like 
God doesn't need your little crumb house, Solomon. And he knew that. And Stephen's preaching at these men because, because what Jesus had said and what Stephen had preached is that the temple's coming down, that they had prophesied the destruction. And what they had the audacity to say was, you can't be from God, you can't be representing the Old Testament God because the temple is where he's at. This is what constrains him. This is how he moves and works in the world is through the temple and we own the real estate. And he was saying two points. It does not spatially constrain God who is infinite and in any place and everything. And secondly, it does not bind him to work through this. It doesn't constrain him and it doesn't constrain his works. If he chooses to flick off the map that little goldy, dusty temple that you made and choose to work through other ways and other means, that is completely his prerogative, completely within his ability. And he's not downgrading as if I'd love the temple, but the Jews got it. How do, what do I do? You know what? Back to the tent. No, he's, he's always unraveling his saving purposes in upgrading fashion. This is what Stephen said, that long, arduous sermon of recapping the Old Testament to show God is everywhere and does anything he wants anywhere. And then he makes his defense about the law. Because You remember, they had said, you're against God in the temple and you're against Moses in the law. You're going to change the law. Jesus of Nazareth is going to change the customs of Moses. And so he moves Look at verse 54. This one we are going to go line by line through. Sorry, 51 to 53. I think I said 54 just now. 51 to 53. He starts his defense about what he's saying of the law. First of all, he did not disparage it. Just like Jesus had said in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill it. So Stephen is also sort of making this defense, and let's, let's do it for him, say he's not disparaging the law, saying there's anything wrong with it, or that he's, it needs to be done away with because it's evil. He's not saying that. Jesus did not inspire anyone to say that. He said in verse 38, Stephen, speaking about what Moses was given from heaven, he called them living oracles that were received from angels to give to the people. He does by no means think that the law is old, dodgy, destructive, evil, or wrong. He upholds the law as God-breathed scripture. But secondly, he speaks of the Jews' historical treatment of the law like this. This is how he sums up how the Jewish people treated the living oracles of God. Verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt to false worship. That's what 39 says. That's how he just recaps all of our fathers from the day they got the law till now. You know what they did? They thrust Moses aside in their hearts, and they turned after the idols of the other nations. So as good as they are, this is what, this is what Stephen is saying. This is what I hope you know. As good as the law is, and what the book of Hebrews argues is, as good as the old covenant is, it's insufficient. Not because it's dodgy, 
but because it was never designed to bring final and finished salvation. It was designed as a preparation. It was designed as the, as the driveway, and Jesus is the house. You're never meant to live in, in the blueprint. Don't ever take a blueprint of a house, put it over your head, sit in the street in the gutter and tell yourself you've got a mansion. You don't. That's what the Jews would do with, with the old covenant. They can't get rid of this thing. It's, it's, the, it's perfect. It's God-breathed. It's, it's tremendous. Yes. But it's not the finished product. It's flawless, but it wasn't designed to be the finished product. When Jesus came and established that finished product, his own body, they rejected it. Verse 51 then shows us the third point. So Stephen did not disparage the law. He upheld it as God breathed. But he says that the Jews are the ones who are thrusting it to the side. And then he says to this generation who killed Jesus, this generation, he's preaching it. This generation did the exact same thing. They're cut from the same cloth as the gold calf worshippers. He looks at them in verse 51 and he says, you stiff-necked people. This, this in theological terms, this is called going Old Testament. When you, when you call them what he's about to call them, this is called going Old Testament on them. He's going to call them stiff-necked, which is what the, the prophets love to say. He's going to call them uncircumcised of heart, which, which means like the act of circumcision was removing flesh off a vital organ, and it was supposed to symbolize the, the removing of sinful flesh from the heart, but your hearts are not circumcised, is what he tells them. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Our fathers broke the law, so do you. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did they not persecute? And, and which of the prophets did they not kill who were announcing beforehand the coming of the righteous one? What did our fathers do? They broke the law, turned away from Moses, and killed every prophet God sent to remind them. What did you guys do? Because surely you're not that bad, right, Sanhedrin? You're all, you're all moral guys. He says, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Our fathers killed everybody who came prophesying the righteous one. But guess who you butchered? You butchered the one they were prophesying about. You butchered the righteous one. So, so here's Stephen's argument at this point. If anybody has the right to, to claim that the other person is breaking the law, I don't think it's you, Sanhedrin. But let's just, let's just use Jesus' line here. Whoever is, of, uh, whoever is guiltless of breaking the law of Moses, why don't he cast the first stone? I don't think you're going to be the ones racing to the pebbles, Sanhedrin. You are like your fathers. You turned away from Moses because you killed the one who embodied the law of Moses. And at this, they were just a little bit irritated. We'll see their response in just a moment, but first I want to look at what uh, 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 some of the, the applications we can make as to how this, this whole sermon, this point that he's made of the temple and the law, how does it show us a transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant? And it's fairly simple. In the Old Covenant, the, the place of worship was the temple, the tabernacle, a, a very small located area which very few could go into. 
But in the new covenant, Jesus says, time is coming and is now here. When people will not worship God on this mountain or that mountain, but, but those who worship God will do so in spirit and in truth. So now in the new covenant, now that Jesus fulfilled that old temple system and established the, the church age, where is the place where we can gather and worship God? Anywhere and everywhere. There's just no such thing as holy places. I've got good, well-meaning Christian friends who have a location on there that they think God really meets them there. Friends, that, that disparages the Old Testament. Uh, sorry, the, the New Covenant. That insults Jesus. He died, bled for, and purchased back the whole earth. It's all his. Wherever we go, wherever we are, there the people of God can gather and be the holy place where God and secondly, we can ask of the law. What is this, all this wording, all this preaching that Stephen says about the law? How does this show us the new covenant? What we know from New Testament theology is that the law of the old covenant, it came through Moses in, in really three parts. The three fingers there. Three, three parts. The first was the moral law, which applies to all people, all times. It, it's just what righteousness is. The Ten Commandments, written by God's own finger. But then there was parts that were only meant to apply for a certain period for a certain people. And that's what we call the civil law of God and the ceremonial law of God. The civil law of God was all about their nationhood, their, their, uh, sorry, their political rules and how are they, to, they, they were to reign, what they could eat and what they could do and where they were to go. That, that's the civil law. And then there was the ceremonial law. And that's how they were supposed to be able to approach God, through priests, through the temple, through sacrifices, through certain prayers, through offerings, and all of that. And what we see in the New Testament is that the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, represent the eternal righteousness. That's always ongoing, still in effect. But the civil, about the nation of Israel, and the ceremonial, referring to the temple and slaughtering of animals, is now fulfilled and finished. So what we have now is, 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 is that the righteousness of the first, the, the Ten Commandments, is, is lived out by us who, who follow the apostles' teaching as handed down from Jesus. But the, the people of God, the nation of God, the priests of God, Peter says, is Christians. He calls us in First Peter the, the, the holy royal priesthood. A nation chosen for God is the church. So now we ask, who is the new covenant people of God? Any and everyone who comes to God through Jesus. The civil and the ceremonial were meant to sort of distinguish the Jews. Like, we don't eat that. We don't go there. We're different. We belong to God. Now, what identifies us as belonging to God? Not being Jewish, not the civil or the ceremonial law, but being in Christ. So now the, the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. The law is filled up and finished in Jesus. He does not, he does not upgrade them by removing them. As, as in on your wedding day, no one's going to come up to you and pat you on the back and holding back tears say, I'm, I'm just so sorry that your engagement was broken off. After today, you won't have a fiance anymore. Yeah, I have a wife. A little bit better. I'm not going backwards. We're not tearing down. We're putting the roof on. We're 
finishing, we're fulfilling. This is what it was all leading to. When, when Jesus fulfills the temple and fulfills the law, he's not tearing down. He's putting the final piece on. That's what Jesus meant. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what, if Stephen on that day, if Stephen had meant to get up and defend himself, sort of clear himself of all these charges, he failed. He just did a terrible job. He got himself worse, deeper down into the gutter of, of condemnation, according to the Sanhedrin. He did not seek that day to escape persecution. But if his aim that day was to preach Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the, the center of God's saving work, if he meant to do that, he succeeded. And the people who were standing there, the Sanhedrin, they gnashed their teeth at him, verse 54 says. They were enraged, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Does that not just summarize everything he said? I'm seeing the glory of God which has been removed. from And who's at his right hand? Oh, you guys. Not Moses, not your latest high priest, Jesus, the Messiah, whom you killed, who is now raised and now at the right hand of God. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. He's there. So, so that what we see is that uh, another theme that really came through the sermon is rejected leadership. Did you notice that as we were going through? That, that Joseph was given a prophecy of elevation and his brothers rejected him but God approved of him and brought him back over them. And then Moses came to the Jews and they rejected him, called him a murderer, and he left. And then God brought him back with power and made him redeemer and ruler. And then again at Sinai, they rejected Moses, but God brought punishment on them to approve Moses. That every prophet was rejected and even Christ was rejected. What Stephen is saying is, you Jews have a fine habit of rejecting and missing the leader that God sends to you. And your final loss was in Jesus. You rejected him, you missed him, and he came back, is now elevated, ascended, resurrected Lord over all. That's Stephen's point. At this point, they take him, they drag him out, and they throw stones at him until he is dead. What modern-day application can we learn of all of this? What can we as a church learn and what can we as individuals learn? Let's close out with these three points. When you read the Old Testament, do not skip them over. Do not, do not just go for the really easy-to-read parts of the, you know, the parts you have flannel graph pictures of and that are really easy from Sunday school. Don't just go to those parts. According to Stephen and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, Jesus is on every page. And until you see, or let's, let's add this, until you hear from your preachers, if this isn't your church or this is your church, whatever, preachers must be able to draw out of Scripture the line to Christ. If they fail to do that, according to Stephen, they get nothing from that passage. All of the Bible is about Jesus. It's all pointing to him or pointing back to him. It's all about Jesus. But secondly... We can learn that God is not restrained. Let, let's never think that 
maybe like these Jews, maybe like we can get in the habit of, of thinking, maybe like well-meaning Christians try and preach that God's really constrained to those great and glorious and beautiful parts of working through your life. Like if I told you that the big shining temple of gold is where God lives, you'd go, that, make, that makes perfect sense. If I said that these dirty, poor, broken, sinful Christians, that's where the God of glory is dwelling, you'd find that hard to believe. And likewise, I think if we can take a book out of Joseph and Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon, I think the same can be said of our Christian life. God is not just at work in those, in those times of life that are very evidently God. They're moving. It's glorious. It's perfect. There's, there's nothing wrong. It's smooth sailing. God is at work and always bringing history to glorify Jesus at every point in our life. So, so maybe like Joseph, you, you're in a point at your life that really feels like you've been falsely accused. You're thrown in prison. There's not one thing good going for you. Now, maybe like Moses, you're, you've, been, you, you've left, you're, nothing's going great for you, you're in the desert, you're herding sheep, you used to be an Egyptian prince. Maybe like Abraham, you had high hopes, but you're still just living in tents. Whatever the, the spiritual application might be, God is not constrained at only working for his glory to elevate Christ in your great moments. Wherever you're at, God is able to say, and the great cloud of witnesses would remind you tonight, all going to glorify Jesus. When you die, you will see it all. Until then, labor on with faith and rejoice. And then thirdly, I think what we can take and what we should remind ourselves is that even though God exposed many to the covenant, the old covenant, that, that there were millions of Jews, there was hundreds of thousands of Jews in, in, in Jerusalem at the times of the holidays, when they would all come, there was, there was so many of them who were near the covenant, who had sort of gotten a little bit wet by the covenant, who were really close and they'd gotten a glimpse of the covenant. They were not saved because they were not in that covenant according to what God had spoken to them. And there's a way that Christians, maybe people here tonight, can be in a church, on the roster, in a Christian family, hearing lots about Jesus, maybe even you, like the Jews, would receive the law and the word of God as delivered by angels. But friends, have you kept it? Have you, and I'm, I'm not asking, have you kept the law? Because the answer to that is no, we're all sinners. But have you received Jesus by faith and thereby come into a personal relationship with Christ as your Savior so that your sins are forgiven and you are made righteous before God? Have you done that because having Christian parents, grandparents, friends, or even a schedule that looks Christian will not save you. Believe on Jesus Christ. Trust that he has taken your sin. Believe that he rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. And whatever else happens to you in this life, your sin or suffering, you are saved because of his work. That's what Stephen wants us to know. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray to the God of grace. God, we thank you for what is an enormous sermon from Stephen, not just in its length, but in its impact. That if we would be those who by your spirit, and I, I pray that we are, God, if we are those whose ears are open and our eyes are open to see the glory of Jesus, we saw him shining through that passage. 
He is the leader that you have sent. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the presence of God among us as a temple. We thank you, God, that of all the ages we could have lived, we live in this also privileged age that has come after Jesus, that can see him with clarity from Scripture. And I pray, God, that none of us, no one here, no one listening online would be like those who heard and liked and were interested and were around it all but never entered into salvation. Pray, God, that we would have faith in his finished work. We would stop trusting ourselves and stop being, being damned and condemned by our sin, but we would trust Jesus as Savior, that we would be those who preach his name, share his gospel, and spread it to the ends of the earth as you are worthy of. And it's all in the glorious, uplifted, exalted name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.